Hello, dear listener, and welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. Do you want to dive deeper into this story? Do you want to get episodes early and listen without ads? Well, you get all of that and more for as little as $5 a month. Go to dakotaspotlight.com and check out Spotlight Plus. This is Dakota Spotlight Podcast, a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Wolner. And we're all sitting there having a cup of coffee, and then there's a knock on the door. Um, Billy approached me from, like, across the room. It was like, hey! Just imagine any typical day. You're walking across campus or, you know, wherever you work, or maybe you're walking through downtown Fargo or something. And these uh, suits come in, and they start, you know, they ask the question, uh, is there a real wolf here? And he said, I had one of those. And he knew what it was, and he knew what it was about, and that he was... Now they asked, does anybody know Bill Jr.? There was something that I thought of. I did have a cousin. In this episode, we'll do a few things. For one, I want to tell you just a bit more about Billy and the week he disappeared. Then, we're going to meet Nancy, who knew Billy and remembers Billy and very much wants justice for Billy. Nancy will take us back to 1978 as she shares some memories with us. Also in this episode, I want to introduce you to a different character in this story, a central figure, one we need to watch very closely because... We're going to be consulting this dodgy character throughout this entire journey. We need to both trust and question this character very carefully. Okay, it's not a person. Actually, it's a thing, something called our memory. To follow Billy, to chase him, and to discover new things about him, we'll need a type of understanding about how our memory works, how our brain works. Because it's been 42 years since Billy was last seen alive, and let's face it, when consulting memory, we're going to be traveling down some fuzzy corridors. But what does that mean for us? Should we trust our memories, or should we dismiss them? Well, I learned something interesting this week that I want to share later in this episode. Some good news for all of us. There are some ways to clear up some of the blurry images and memories that we all carry around with us. Welcome to Episode 2 of Chasing Billy, A Pursuit for Justice, an ongoing week-to-week investigation into the 1978 murder of William Wolfe, Jr. At the time of his death, Billy Wolfe was 21 years old, and he'd been living in the city of Fargo for about one year, ever since moving out of his parents' house in West Fargo. Billy Wolf had attended West Fargo High School. There, he had participated in track and field and wrestling. He was also in the choir for four years and showed some interest in the theater playing a part in one play. He was also interested in photography and took photographs for at least one of the school yearbooks. Billy's father, also named William, ran a small business named Bill Wolf and Son Mobile Home Service Company. Billy worked for his father, and the normal routine was for Bill Sr. to pick up Bill Jr. at his apartment in Fargo each morning before work. 
But on some days, for example, when it rained, Bill Sr. did not need his son to come into work. On the morning of Tuesday, August 15, 1978, a slight rain shower hit the area. So, Billy called his parents' house in West Fargo and spoke to his mother, Betty Wolf. Billy wanted to know if his father would be picking him up that morning for work or not. I've been told that Billy did not have a telephone in his apartment, so he walked to a payphone to make this call. Apparently, Billy's father was not home at the time. So, Billy told his mother that he would call back occasionally to find out if his dad would need him for work that day. It was the last time Betty Wolf would ever speak with her son, and two days later, she reported Billy as a missing person. Three days after that, in the early afternoon of Sunday, August 20th, a young man was canoeing in the Red River north of the Fargo-Moorhead area. The Red River flows to the north here, and it's not very wide, only about 200 feet. The shore on the east side of the river is Minnesota soil, and the shore on the west, North Dakota. Two different U.S. states, two different jurisdictions. At some point, the young canoeist came across two garbage bags. One bag was caught on a downed tree on the Minnesota side of the river. The other bag was found 200 yards downstream on the North Dakota side. The man took a closer look at the bags and then, for whatever reason, he paddled east and called the authorities in Minnesota, or more specifically, the Clay County Sheriff's Office. Law enforcement arrived and worked the scene, but the body was not moved from the location until about 9.30 p.m. because the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, or BCA, had been called in from St. Paul, Minnesota, a good three and a half hours drive away. The deputy sheriff of Clay County at the time was a man named Larry Costello. In an article published the next day by the Forum of Fargo-Moorhead, the deputy sheriff stated that he would be questioning a man who said he saw, quote, strange cars in the area. In another article published a few days later, again by the Forum of Fargo-Moorhead, Costello made a comment about how the body had been severed. He told reporters, quote, it must have been done with some kind of bandsaw or something that made one swath when it went through. The accuracy of Costello's description has since been questioned. Two days later, with the help of dental records, the body was identified as Billy Wolf Jr. According to the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension in Minnesota, the cause of death was determined to be multiple knife wounds around the neck. In fact, his jugular vein had been cut. Billy's high school classmate, Bob Wensloff, didn't work for Billy's dad, but he worked at the same office. Bob believes he was present with Bill Sr. and others when the police came to the office to inform the father about Billy. See, when I, I had worked for Brookwood Mobile Homes, Pierce Mobile Homes, and I was, uh, I was the hauler and the setter-upper. I hauled mobile homes. I was the first guy in North Dakota, North Dakota to haul the first 1680-foot mobile home and get put in jail because they said my permits weren't uh, ready up in Crookston. I was sitting in the office that morning. I can't remember what, what day it was. It was after a weekend. It was a Monday, Tuesday. I can't remember. I was in the shop having a cup of coffee with Mark Jackson, salesperson for Brookwood Mobile Home Trailer, trailer Park. 
And uh, oh, I can't remember who it is. I know Bill walked in the office. Bill Sr., that is. I think at the time, Pat Burdett was the park manager. And we're all sitting there having a cup of coffee. And then there's a knock on the door. And these uh, suits come in and they start, uh, they ask the question, uh, is there a Bill Wolf here? Does anybody know Bill Jr.? And I hadn't seen Bill. I, I, like I, I, it's about a week I didn't see him. He wasn't at work. Of course, it wasn't my problem because he, he didn't work with me. He worked for his father. And then they just asked Bill Sr. to uh, go with them. And then the word came out that uh, Bill was uh, killed. And uh, they had found him in a pair of uh, plastic bags in the river. In an article published later that week, the Forum of Fargo-Moorhead reported that four agencies joined the investigation. Law enforcement agencies from Moorhead, Fargo City, Clay, and Cass Counties are investigating the murder, it said. Eight days after the discovery of the body, the FBI was asked to help with the investigation. I'll be honest, at the time of this recording, it's unclear to me how involved the FBI actually ever became. Again, this is an open case, so the records and case documents are more or less sealed. About one month later, on September 27th, the Forum of Bargo-Moorhead published an article with the headline, Appeal Yields Little Information on Murder. Among other things, the article states, Minnesota and North Dakota authorities investigating the homicide say Wolf was last believed to have been seen early on the evening of Friday, August 18th. So, according to this, the last time anyone saw Billy Wolf was Friday evening, August 18, 1978. I have no idea who saw him last or where, but I know there are people out there who do. Hi again, it's me, James. I just want to tell you about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to the Dakota Spotlight podcast that allows you to listen to these same episodes without ads, and you get access to them before anyone else. Your subscription will also unlock access to exclusive episodes, the Spotlight Plus newsletter, videos, pictures, documents, and more. All at the same time, you will be supporting me and Dakota Spotlight. Please check out Spotlight Plus by going to dakotaspotlight.com. Thank you for your support. 24 hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris, and this is my story. Conning the con. Another thing we know about Billy was that he smoked marijuana, pot. Billy's friend, Chuck, had this to say about Billy, marijuana, and pot smokers at West Fargo High School. Oh, I always, I always knew he liked his weed, so. Oh, West Fargo, there was always those few that you always thought were high. 
and I'm not even sure if they actually were. They just maybe acted like it. But but um, I, I I remember some people going out and partaking over lunch and things like that. Partaking over lunch meant smoking pot in your car in the parking lot or elsewhere. Perhaps this is a good time to introduce you to Nancy, because the way Nancy was introduced to Billy was through marijuana or pot. I met Billy about a year before his murder, and the only reason we connected between West Fargo and Moorhead was that Fargo opened a teen youth center on Main and Broadway. It's a train station, was called the Depot. Um, and that's where all of us kids kind of congregated. And it kind of opened my world because then I met people from Fargo, from West Fargo. Um, that's the first time that I saw him, or he's in the parking lot, and he's, um, Billy um, would sell dime bags out in the parking lot. That's um, like a little bit of marijuana, four or five joints worth. But also he's inside, he's just super friendly, and um, I thought he was really cute. Um, so he was tall and I think broad-shouldered. Um, I think his eyes were like the Scandinavian green or blue, hair blonde and feathered back. Um, I think he had like the teardrop glasses if, if he wore them. Um, he was always clean. Um, he was just always friendly. You could hear him laugh across a room. If you were at the depot and you were looking for Billy, you would know where to find him by following that laugh. What kind of laugh just deep and loud and sincere and like, I don't care who hears me. Just very catchy. <laughs> we had one long, well, one one-on-one -on -one conversation at the depot, and that was um, because I was wearing a bracelet from Vietnam Veterans Missing in Action. So in the 1970s, they would give out steel bracelets, and it would have the name and the year of a vet that was maybe missing in action in Vietnam to keep it in people's mind and be respectful. Um, so all of us kind of wore it in junior high. I didn't take mine off until it broke off when I was in college, but at that time at the depot, um, Billy approached me from like across the room. He was like, hey, I had one of those. And he knew what it was, and he knew what it was about, and that his broke, and that might be when I fell in love. <laughs> Nancy has a very specific memory. She remembers attending a party at Billy's place not long before his murder. I'm going to play it for you now. But because we're going to be talking a lot about memory, I want to introduce you to someone else very briefly. Because I realize that we're going to need a lot of help on this journey. Let's face it, we're going to need a lot of help in a lot of areas. But understanding memory is going to be a big one. My name is Jeff Johnson. I'm an associate professor of psychology at North Dakota State University. Uh, I run a research lab here in the Department of Psychology where I study working memory, so our ability to hold information that we've acquired from the world in mind briefly while we use it in different cognitive tasks. And I try to understand uh, how this cognitive ability is supported by brain activity. We'll be hearing more from Professor Johnson in a bit, but I did ask him for some tips on how to help people retrieve memories that have been dormant for a while. The good news is that if people are given enough time and enough opportunities for retrieval, 
Memories can begin to wake up again. They can come back. And there are also some established methods for helping these somewhat dormant memories to come out of hibernation. You want to kind of put people back into the context that they were in when they would have initially, you know, uh, tried to store that information, right? Because that can serve as a retrieval cue that helps people recall what happened, right? You want to do things like that. Uh, you want to provide as many of these kinds of cues as you can, or you can think of cues as hints, right? Um, and then you want them to kind of mentally time travel almost back to that event and try to put themselves back in that situation. And a lot of doing these kinds of things helps people recall more details from the event. So let's do some time traveling and go back to Billy's party in 1978. And for those of you out there, and I know you're out there, who have been telling yourselves for the last week, Oh, you know, I remember Billy vaguely, but my memories are not that great, and my stories wouldn't help this podcast. I want you to relax and allow your mind to just casually start snooping around those archives in your brain. Take a few days. Do it passively. Keep those memories just a little bit more at the forefront of your consciousness, and I'll bet you anything, one day, while washing dishes, or while in the shower, or while walking along the sidewalk, out of nowhere... Some details are going to come back to you. At this point in our journey, I'm not asking you to come up with some memory that will solve this crime, although that would be something. I'm just asking you to help me understand who Billy was. We can't bring Billy back to life, but we can breathe new life into his tragic story. We can humanize him again. We can put Billy at the forefront of our thoughts. That's our goal for the moment. If we can do that together, Perhaps the rest of the journey, the path forward, will unfold. The last time I saw Billy, um, I call it the big smile party. I had a... Um, yellow and black gremlin, who was 1978, stick, um, stripped down. Um, they don't even make gremlins anymore. Uh, so I drove through our neighborhood. I picked up Julie and Paul Gromoski. We all smoked our cools and Marlboro Reds and drove to Fargo, where um, Julie had told me that Billy was having a party. And that was big time, you know, crossing the river, going to a party. The cars parked everywhere. Um, um, there was a bonfire back there. Upstairs were the rooms where people actually lived. The keg, the party, was in the downstairs um, ground floor level of the boarding house, which was like a living room, small dining room, and kitchen. The screen door was open. So I just remember walking in, and he was the first person I saw. Taller than the rest of the people. He had on a pastel shirt. He had a huge smile with big white teeth. Blonde hair kind of feathered back. Welcoming and, hey, come on in. 
in. Let's have some fun. I was kind of talking with my girlfriends, and I was like, I'm, I think I might ask Billy out. I think he's cute. And my friend Julie said, oh, he's ugly. And I disagreed. So we were kind of arguing about that. And we were approached by my friend Bonnie, who also lived in the same boarding house as Billy, in a room just down from where Billy lived. And so she joined Julie and I and said, um, you don't want to get involved with him. She warned me to stay away from Billy and that he was in deep, deep trouble with really bad people. And I said, well, what is deep, deep trouble? And she said, he owes money on a drug bill and his life has been threatened. He has a deadline to come up with the money or die, be killed. Well, then there was a bunch of gabbing and music and I went to the kitchen um, to fill my beer from the keg. I remember the kitchen floor was linoleum, there was beer spilled, there was cigarette butts in the beer. It was a 70s house party and it was a mess. So then I'm like watching Billy and he doesn't seem like something like that would be on his mind. He's just effusive, he's friendly, you can hear his laugh across the room. He's just welcoming to everyone. The party was out of hand. A little bit later, I went into the kitchen. I had to step over the puddles of beer and cigarettes and empty bottles on the counter. I felt bad for anyone living there that wasn't at the party. But somebody um, confronted Billy in the kitchen and asked him, what is the deal that I'm hearing about you? We heard you had a gun put to your head because of money you owed for drugs. And he immediately copped to it and said yes. It was very noisy, but he said that he had been picked up, driven out to the country, dragged out of the back seat of the car, made to kneel between the headlights of the car and beg for his life with a gun to his head. And he said, I, I said, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I'll get you what you want. I'll pay you. A lot of people in the kitchen just gave him crap because nobody really believed that. And plus, why would you have a party? I don't know what to make of that. <laughs> Two days or so after that, um, people were looking for him at the depot. Everyone wants their dime bag. Where's Billy? Where's Billy? For a week. Nobody knew where he was. Um, Bonnie, my friend at the boarding house, said she hadn't seen him. No one had been in or out of his room that she knew of. And um, it was about a week after that that they found his body. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And we have a, well, not so gently named podcast called Stop the Killing. Yeah, there's a clue in the title. We need your help to end the global mass shooting epidemic. Find out how as we bring you the stories right from the source. If you would have told me that a Columbine could have happened at Columbine, I would have said, no way. 
I remember just thinking, he's got a gun. Something rose up inside, and I said, not my school. What we can't underestimate is the power that individuals could have in stopping these school shootings. My little boy, Alex, was murdered. If we can fix the failures, we can save lives. My daughter, Elena, was killed. She'd want me to do something about this. I know she would do something about it. Join us and be part of the solution. Subscribe now to Stop the Killing podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to your true crime podcasts. First off, I want to thank Nancy for sharing her story with me. At the time of this recording, she's one of few people who have agreed to do so. If you're like me, after listening to Nancy's story, you're asking yourself some questions like, I wonder if this story is true or I wonder how accurate it is. You might be thinking, well, it must be true. There's so many details. Or you might be thinking, this can't be true. There are too many details. I ask myself these questions, and because I'm aware that I'm not an expert on memory, I reached out to Dr. Jeff Johnson at North Dakota State University. But of course, the first thing I did was go looking for Nancy's friend, Bonnie. And we were approached by my friend, Bonnie, who also lived in the same boarding house as Billy. Nancy also tells us that Bonnie warned her about getting involved romantically with Billy. Bonnie told Nancy that Billy was in deep trouble. Obviously, I wanted to talk to Bonnie about all this. And so I went looking for Bonnie. I found her. I found a phone number. I left a voicemail explaining everything. And then, a few days later, I called her back. Unfortunately, it was a lousy connection. My name is... Bonnie Brennan. Yeah, Morehead High. I went to um, Minneapolis. You know, I, I like I said, a bad connection. But I asked Bonnie if she remembered the party, the apartment, or boarding house. I asked her if she remembered Billy Wolf and his murder. She said, "No." No, I, I have no idea who Billy Wolf was. I have no idea who Billy Wolf was. At that point, I was going to school in Grand Forks, North Dakota, so. I'm not even sure how I could have been placed at this party. I don't remember anything. After hearing my voicemail, Bonnie had looked up some articles online. She'd seen photos of Billy, and still no memory of Billy or any murder in Fargo. As you can imagine, I was a little bit surprised. What's going on here, after all? Does Bonnie just not remember this, or is Nancy confusing Bonnie for someone else? I was just about to hang up when Bonnie said this. There was something that I thought of. I did have a cousin that I believe lives in a boarding house in Fargo. There is a possibility. I mean, she had long blonde hair. I had long blonde hair. That's it, I thought. Bonnie had a cousin, also named Brummond, who lived in Fargo, maybe at a boarding house type of place, she thought. Not a partier, but you never know. I was excited. Nancy just had the wrong Brummond. I tracked down Bonnie's cousin, and it was a dead end. She said it definitely wasn't her. She never went to any parties like that, ever. So I let Professor Jeff Johnson at NDSU listen to Nancy's story. I wanted to get his take on it. And by the way, it might feel like we're picking on Nancy just a little bit right now, but that's not the objective. On the contrary... Nancy's story simply offers us a great opportunity for us to explore how we shall proceed when dealing with memories from 42 years ago. In fact, after I spoke with Bonnie, 
I called Nancy back. Well, I'm just um, telling the truth as I know it, but at the same time, I realize parts of it could be fuzz. I could have Bonnie mixed up with someone, or it could have been Bonnie. Um, I don't know how to sort through any of that. Um, I just am telling my truth, and then it's kind of up to you to juggle all (laughs) all the stories since you're seeking them out, you know? I invite any version of the story, any information, because I don't have to be right. I just want to find out. I just want everyone to tell their truth and then hopefully get to the real truth. And that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Thanks for understanding, Nancy. So let's get back to Professor Jeff Johnson at NDSU. First, I asked him to tell us a bit about memory in general. And then we talk specifically about Nancy's story, about Bonnie's role, and what might have happened here. Uh, Yeah, sure. First of all, thank you for inviting me to be on. I'm happy to chat about it. It sounds like a really interesting uh, case. Um, Yeah, I'll try to do my best here. Uh, Memory is, of course, a very important cognitive process. It's been studied in depth for many years now. uh, And, you know, we know a lot about how memory works at this point. Um, But that being said, I should also say there's a lot that we don't understand about memory. Um, So I'll try to give you an idea here, but but just know that the area is just kind of too vast. The research literature is too vast for me to, of course, cover it in detail. But but generally, something maybe that would be relevant specifically to what we're talking about here is, is this idea that our memory doesn't seem to work, you know, like a video camera. You know, we're not sort of out wandering around in the world recording everything with high fidelity, Um, Our memory is very selective, first of all. Just imagine any typical day you're walking across campus or, you know, wherever you work, or maybe you're walking through downtown Fargo or something, and there's just typically a lot going on. There's Even when there's hardly anybody around, there's tons of different things you could be focusing on at any given moment and that you could be storing in memory. We just don't have the capacity to store everything that's happening every moment of our lives. So what seems to have happened is we've evolved or developed a type of memory that's highly selective, right? So we wind up storing just a a really a fraction of the things that we encounter in daily life. Okay, perhaps no big surprises there. Our brains are not video cameras. We're not capable of storing everything we experience. We sort of pick and choose what we pay attention to. Another thing Professor Johnson pointed out is that our lives are often very repetitive. We do the same things over and over again, following our routines. We get out of bed, brush teeth, make coffee, shower, dress. And so it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to store every single detail of all this kind of boring stuff we're doing all the time. And so we wind up storing things that are interesting or novel or that stand out to us in some way. Interesting and novel, like crossing the Red River one night and going to a party in Fargo at Billy's house. Things like that. Things that stand out for us. Those are the things we remember. But the tricky thing about memory is that it's not enough to just pay attention to something. Of course we don't remember the things we didn't pay attention to, but how accurate are our memories of things we did pay attention to? Our memories uh, aren't a verbatim record of exactly what we saw, even the stuff that we're paying attention to. And to confuse things even further, even if we record a memory accurately at the time of the event, it seems our memory banks are not locked and sealed like some kind of encrypted, unaltered vault. There is no chain of custody record noting what came when and from where and when it was last touched. We wind up storing information in memory, and then that memory can become changed in various ways, right? We can add information to it. 
we and as I was saying, related to this idea that we're kind of repetitively doing the same things over and over, we wind up developing uh, these long-term knowledge structures that are referred to in the literature as schemas. And schemas are information structures that have to do with things that we uh, regularly experience in, in the world. So you might have a schema for going to a restaurant and sitting down and ordering. And so our memories can start to get supplemented by information from these knowledge structures. So you might go back and try to recall something, say, from a week or a month or a year ago, and part of that memory might be specific things that you happen to focus on and wind up successfully storing in, in memory from the event you're trying to recall. Other pieces of that memory might be drawn from these schemas. So we can't record everything. We sort of select what we pay attention to and try to record. And even when we pay really close attention to something and record it in our mind, our memories are susceptible to corruption by other sources. But that shouldn't be a problem, right? Using Nancy's story just as an example, if certain details about Billy's case had come to her from some other source, a newspaper article perhaps, certainly Nancy's brain would know that, right? Our brains would tell us, hey, you remember this, but this detail over here, you read that in the newspaper. Nope, that's not what the research suggests. It turns out that people aren't all that good at knowing, you know, determining what the source was of their particular memories. It's quite easy for people to become confused about, you know, which parts of my memory are coming from explicit recall of what actually happened versus this more schema-like memory about what I think typically does happen versus, you know, information that I might have acquired from some other source. So I let Professor Johnson listen to Nancy's story, and we discussed it. What might be going on there with Nancy versus Bonnie, and so on. And again, I want to make clear that the purpose of this segment is not to attempt to catch anyone in a lie. We're trying to solve a crime here. We're adding tools to our toolbox, learning about memory and what things we should be aware of moving forward. And Professor Johnson makes this point as well. A person does not need to be lying to get their memories wrong. Uh, yeah, it was a really interesting clip. And I think at the outset, we just have to acknowledge that it's always entirely possible that one or more people in the story are lying about something, right? So that's, we'd be naive and, and foolish probably to, to assume that everybody's always telling the truth. Uh, but there's lots of reasons why people's memories can diverge that have nothing at all to do with lying. So, any, you know, it's not the case that every time there's a discrepancy between what one person reports and what another person reports, particularly over the kind of time spans we're talking about, that one or both of them must be lying about something, right? It's certainly a possibility, but it's not the only possibility. And let me just add, for those of you who are considering reaching out to me with more information about this case, we're not going to be scrutinizing every story like this with Professor Johnson. My goal is to take everyone's memories, even fragmented or perhaps flawed ones, and then lay them out in front of me and look for common denominators, patterns, and themes, much like clues or pieces of a puzzle. My point, please don't let this segment discourage you from sharing your memories of Billy with me. One of the most interesting things to me about the clip is not that Bonnie doesn't remember it. It was more, the more interesting thing really was the kind of level of detail that Nancy had about this event, right? I mean, she has very specific recollections about, you know, driving across the bridge and the particular type of car and the cigarettes they were smoking. We all smoked our cools and Marlboro Reds and drove to Fargo, where um, Julie had told me that Billy was having a party. 
And that was big time, you know, crossing the river, going to a party. Feels right. Um, I think she had a bunch of details that she described about arriving at the party, you know, um, who was there, you know, what the, where the keg was, you know, there was a bonfire. There was Everywhere, um, um, there was a bonfire back there. People, you know, she had uh, information about the shirt, I think, that Billy was wearing, and, and among other specific details. Um, and, you know, so clearly what she's signaling, I think, in her recounting of this tale is that this was a pretty memorable event for her, right? This was, and she actually gives us hints to that along the way, right? She says, this was something I didn't typically do, you know, getting in the car with my friends, going across the bridge into Fargo to attend this party. That was a very novel event, right? So this is the kind of thing that would tend to stand out in somebody's memory. Uh, she was clearly very, very taken by Billy from the outset. So it's perhaps not surprising as well that she had, you know, memories that were specific to that. Had a huge smile with big white teeth, blonde hair kind of feathered back, welcoming and, hey, come on in, let's have some fun. And what about Bonnie? You know, that she would specifically remember Bonnie being the source of that information. I mean, that's, uh, again, I don't have any reason to assume that she's lying here. Uh, and it clearly seems like she remembers an event. She remembers this party. I have no doubt that she probably did attend this party and that she probably did see bon or Billy there. Uh, but it's also possible that there's things about this event that she misremembers, you know, even though she feels like she remembers them very clearly. You know, it's also possible that that Bonnie really was the source of this information. And so, you know, Nancy's memory was accurate. But for whatever reason, this night or this person, Billy, you know, this event, you know, just wasn't really that memorable to Bonnie for whatever reason. You know, with the kind of time spans we're talking about, it is entirely possible and consistent with everything we know about how memory works that she could just be wrong about particulars here, even without lying, right? She doesn't need to be lying to be wrong about specific particulars of her memory. There is some really great news in all of this. Professor Johnson explained that when given enough opportunities and enough time, people can start to remember things again and do so with accuracy. As a sort of a fan of, of the genre of this type of podcast, I'm sure your listeners, and I do this as well, when you're listening to these things, things like that sound like inconsistencies in people's stories, right? You're like, well, he asked you that, and you said you didn't know that. And then 10 minutes later or a day later or a week later, oh, now you remember it, or you remember these other details. I think that can all, always come across as sounding kind of suspicious, you know, like this person must be lying, you know, just like when there's a discrepancy, as we've talked about before, when there's a discrepancies between people's memories, I think we have a tendency to think one or both of these people must be lying, you know. But in these cases, no, this is entirely consistent with what we understand about how retrieval from longer-term memory works, right? You can forget things on one occasion and remember it on a different occasion, right? It's totally possible that as you repeatedly try to retrieve these events, that some things just wind up coming more to the forefront. They come back into your awareness and you remember them. Which is what I'm hoping will happen to some of you. That over time, while we continue to chase Billy, your memories will return to you. And when they do, you'll share them with me. Again, this was Dr. Jeffrey Johnson. He's an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at North Dakota State University, where he runs a research lab studying memory. The wind's a look in my direction. I call 
In the next episode of Chasing Billy, I hope to be speaking with a retired detective who worked on this case. I'd like to learn more about the arrest that was made back in 1978. I want to thank Nancy Nelson for sharing her story with us and for allowing me to use her story to investigate memory. Like me, Nancy is just looking for the truth. I also want to thank Professor Jeffrey Johnson at NDSU for teaching us a lot about memory. A big thank you to Bruce Blackman, who provided me with permission to use his song Moonlight Feels Right, a song that made it to number three on the U.S. charts back in 76. Check out bruceblackman.com for more information. Thanks, Bruce, for the cool tunes and for your generosity. Dakota Spotlight is a production of Forum Communications. My name is James Wollner. See you next time. Thank you for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.